Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We know that come September 23rd, a throne speech uh, will come from uh, the Prime Minister's office. And uh, at that point, either the opposition parties say yay or nay. And uh, if it's nay, then trigger uh, the next election. Many have said that uh, this is going to be a a very expensive throne speech, that it is designed to build back a different Canada, uh, come back with a much uh, greener footprint. Uh, what that means, uh, nobody's really sure, but uh, one thing that does seem to be coming out about this throne speech is that it will be expensive. The latest column from John Iveson in the National Post, Trudeau's literally frightening spending plan has some Liberals, bureaucrats, very worried. To talk more about all of this from your National Post, John Iveson is with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. So is this September 23rd throne speech, is this about unveiling a new, uh, a new plan for a brand new Canada with, a, with a, a brand new mission, or is this about trying to trigger a quick election, something that he knows the opposition won't jump on? Well, I mean, Trudeau was asked yesterday in Vancouver. Well, he wasn't in Vancouver. He was doing an interview with this, the CBC Vancouver, and he said that he's ask, going to ask Canadians to embark in an entirely different direction as a government. And uh, CBC Chris Hall today was quoted as talking to an insider who said it will take money on a scale that we haven't seen before, which is kind of eye-watering when you think about it. Um, I mean, I'm talking to people who are suggesting that, you know, we're already somewhere around $400 billion in deficit this year. Uh, They are suggesting that this throne speech will add another $100 billion to that. So, sorry, sorry, go ahead, continue on. That would take us to a half a trillion dollars in deficit. For folks that can't, I had to look this up. How many zeros in a trillion? There are 12. (laughs) That's a a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I think um, economists I've spoken to, people like David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, saying, you know, if this is spent on productive spending, things that are going to make us more productive down the road, then it might be justifiable. And he used the example, for for instance, of rural broadband. You know, if in today's day and age where we're working from home and you live in an area where you can't get online and it's not reliable, then you are disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, he suggested the government spending the money to improve that service right across Canada would be money well spent. I don't think that's what we're going to see them. So is it about the amount of money that's being spent or what it is being spent on? I think both. I mean, you know, people who lived through 1995, which was a real debt crisis, and the the, the, the Chrétien government with Paul Martin as finance minister really put down the hammer on spending. And, you know, you were seeing departments being cut by 20 to 50% in, in, uh, in spending cuts. That was the direct result of spending mainly by other liberal governments during the 1970s and early 80s, which accumulated an awful lot of debt at a time when interest rates were very, very high. You know, they were interest rates in double digits into the 20s at one point. Um, now, we're seeing interest rates of 1%. So whereas the government in those days were paying 36 cents out of every dollar in interest rate payments, at the moment we're spending about 9 cents. So some, some economists are saying, well, we can afford to put up uh, increase our deficit and increase the national debt because as long as growth grows quicker than interest rates, then we 
that number will not get to an unsustainable stage. But, but the problem is nobody can predict what economic growth is going to do or what interest rates are going to do. And the worry from other people is that at some point, these things are going to get out of whack and we're going to be left with an unsustainable amount of debt. You talked about uh, projects that are proven, projects that are speculation. Uh, we here in Ontario certainly know what happened with, with the green energy plan and, and, and where that all ended up and, and the, the amount of money spent for what we really got out of it. Will he have to prove that this is the way to go, not just what, what is fashionably uh, uh, what is fashionably in vogue right now? I mean, obviously, Canadians want to be green. How much are we willing to pay for it? Right, so I think Canadians do want to be green by and large. That was one of the reasons why the Conservatives lost last time. But this government has already spent a lot of money on green projects. I mean, at the moment, he's talking about green infrastructure projects. There's $180 billion allocated for infrastructure already in the fiscal framework. Um, that's over a, a number of years. But every project that is approved has to have some it goes through a, a climate change lens is this going to improve our, our uh, climate change performance so it would seem strange to me that, that, that there's a shortage of money for green infrastructure in fact at the moment they can't spend the money they've got so if we were going to put more money into green infrastructure he's going to have to display that at the moment there isn't enough for it it's there's a log jam somewhere that more money will 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 solve i'm skeptical of that the other thing, obviously, we have a carbon tax in place already. Now, you know, he could he could put that carbon tax up if he wanted to, uh, uh, if he really wanted to uh, screw back on, on greenhouse gas emissions. But he's already said there's going to be no tax increases because obviously that's politically unpalatable. So, you know, the, I think we're all going to be watching closely as to what they're actually promising and whether there is a, a real need. You know, in another area is uh, childcare. I think there is probably a need for... Uh, in re- after COVID, you know, some of the capacity of daycares has been reduced. I think they're going to put money into daycares to get women back in the workplace. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with that, except for the fact that the federal government's not in a good position to create daycare spaces. I mean, these are provincial jurisdictions. So, you know, if there's money allocated for it, is that something that the provinces want? You know, a lot of the devil here is going to be in the detail. Hmm. Your initial question was about whether there's going to be an election. I don't think there'll be an election because I think the amount of spending will be such that the NDP will not be able to uh, vote against it. John Iveson has been with us. Got to cut you short here, John. We'll chat again. John Iveson okay. from the National Post. The column is Trudeau's literally frightening spending plan has some liberals and bureaucrats very worried. John, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been talking about uh, the last couple of days deals that have been signed with, I think it's now four pharmaceutical companies to make sure that we have a vaccine when one does become available. Uh, Two more deals signed the other day. Uh, Some economists are concerned over Ottawa's refusal to release that information when we've seen it coming from other countries. Uh, Why would they not share it? Does it matter as long as we get the doses that we need to get through this pandemic let's bring in ian lee sprott school of business carlton university he is with us now ian thank you for the time i hope you're doing well i am scott and thanks for inviting me you know ian i'm gonna i'm gonna t-bone you here and start with something completely off because i was just talking to sam Ustroff, who's the uh, parliamentary assistant to the education minister lecce is it possible do you think in ontario to take everything down to 15 students per classroom 
Do we have the capacity to do that? Do we have the buildings? Do we have the room? Do we have My the money? My sense is we don't. I'm, of course, at the tertiary level, the, the university level. Um, so full disclosure, I'm not teaching, although my uh, ex-wife was 35 years as a public school teacher, so I'm fairly familiar with the public school system, and I have two grandchildren in it right now, and I pay close attention. But um, I don't think we have the physical capacity. I mean, the yes, the you are right in your preceding comments that the enrollment is stagnant, or in some instances, in some jurisdictions, it's actually declining. There are parts of the inner city, the urban core, where they're uh, not tearing down schools, but closing them and repurposing them for something else, because there's hardly any young people in the urban core anymore. And I live in the urban core, I know. <laughs> and uh, so where I'm going with this is, of course, there's, there's shortages out in the urban, uh, suburban area where they're growing like crazy, but it isn't balanced across the system. And they were built, those classrooms and the whole, it, the whole the system was built for a given level of enrollment. You go and cut the enrollment in half, and, uh, or, you know, in other words, reduce the class size in each room by half, well, you're effectively doubling the need for space. And we don't have that kind of slack in the system. I mean, why does that argument not come up on this, Ian? Because it seems as if, in this case, we're asking, or, or the teachers' unions are asking for something that is logistically impossible. I, I do agree, and I'm not. I'm unionized, by the way. Full disclosure. So I'm not trashing unions, um, and I know you're not because you just said you weren't. Um, but at the same time, I speak truth to power, and this is just straight arithmetic and straight logic. Um, if you cut the, if the average class size is 25 to 30. And I believe it's somewhere 27, I think, is the average class size in the public school system. So you go from 27 down to 15. That's roughly a 50% reduction, which is another way of saying you're doubling the need for rooms. I mean, it's just arithmetic. This isn't ideology. This isn't. Politics. Why does the government of the day just not come out and say that? I don't know. I, I truly do not know. I don't pretend to have pipelines into that government. It, to me, it, that, that's the sort of thing you should be talking about. It's one thing to have a debate over, you know, the level of government spending and, you know, stuff like that because there's no hard and fast rule. But when you're just talking straight old-fashioned capacity, you know, well, you know, what's the speed of your Internet? Uh, what's the speed limit on the highway? How big is the room that it can hold people? Yeah. And, and we built the system for a given level of enrollment across the province. Fair enough. That, that's what they were supposed to do. But to say now that we can literally cut it in half, the, the, the number of students in each classroom, uh, and, and handle that is just preposterous silliness, because it involves a crude, just a crude doubling of the amount of square meters needed, or buildings and rooms needed, because you're cutting the number of people per room by roughly 50%. Ergo, you're going to have to double the number of rooms, and we can't do that in one week. Two I, I just don't know why. I just don't know why Ian that has not entered into this discussion. And I again, know. I just had Sam Usteroff on, who's the the assistant to the Minister of Education, and asked him the same question. And he again went with how, and and rightly so, that all models are different. It's different in here at one part of the province than it is the other, and la 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 la. And all of that is accurate, but that's not the argument exactly. that you're facing. The argument you're facing right now is they're screaming that they want 15 kids per class. And why don't you just come out and say we can't do it? It's physically impossible. And I don't even agree with the minister when he said it's very different or substantially different in one region to another. I'm not aware of any part of the province where they're, they've got 50% of their rooms empty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're not talking one room in one school. We're talking aggregates here. Okay, so, you know, southeastern Ontario, southwestern Ontario, eastern Ontario, you add up all the buildings and you add up all the students, 
no region is running with 50% of their rooms or classes empty. Yeah. I mean, if they did, we would never be building another classroom for years and years and years to come. So I'm not saying that there, uh, some schools are over, meaning they're crowded and some are empty, or when I say empty, in the, in the urban core, you have empty schools where they're only half-filled. But when you average out over the whole system, they're running pretty close. They're, you know, it's pretty capacity right, and, yeah. and demand is pretty closely matched. It's certainly not out by 50 percent. Well, do you think politicians are worried that, you know, if they say we just don't have the capacity for that and just make the exact same argument that you made, that the, the opposition would come back and say, well, you're doing this, you're doing that. I mean, is there any other argument that would just that would justify all of this, that I'm, would justify doubling the schools? I didn't, I'm surprised the unions aren't pushing the argument saying, okay, we want them only 15 in the room, so therefore, uh, the day that, uh, you, know, there was, you know, you take the class roughly of 30, divide it in half, that means they go every second day, and the second, the day that they're not going, they stay home and you do it virtually. And that's, and that's what that we're seeing with high schools. Like that, that seems to me to be the obvious, uh, solution in the short run, because the idea we're gonna go and build thousands of schools across the province, in, you know, in a nano, you know, a split second to deal with the fall term is just, it's beyond silly. We're having, I mean, it's, it's so childish. Everybody knows that. That's nothing to do with ideology and left, right, or anything. And, and so one short-term solution is, say, okay, we could cut the classroom down to 15 students, a classroom of 30. That means they're going every second day. And on the day they're not going, well, they stay home. Although I think that the parents then, then you're running into the problem of yeah. the parents are going back to work and they're saying, wait a minute. Yeah, they want them in there five days a week. Yeah, they want them in five days a week at the end of the day. They do. Yeah, it's fascinating. It just it's it's absolutely fascinating to me that uh, that we're running all around the bush, but not getting to the root and finding out uh, what the cause is. Exactly. Exactly. So. All right, let's uh, move on to the vaccination. Obviously, as we were saying, uh, a couple more companies uh, on board, four, I believe, in total, who have uh, been charged to procure, uh, come up with the vaccination and and give us uh, 88 million doses, I believe the number was. Uh, What about the cost of all of this? this? Should this be public information at this point? Yes, it should. And we have a history in Canada and the other um, OECD countries, U.S., you know, Germany, France, and so forth, of tremendous transparency in health care. I say that because I look at health care statistics all the time. I'm a number cruncher. I like looking at stats. And we have a remarkable tradition. In fact, Paul Martin, former Prime Minister Paul Martin, set up CAIHI, Canadian Institute Health Information, and you can get the most astonishing statistics there. I'm telling you, anybody who wants to look it up, what's the cost of a, a kidney operation, you know, or a knee operation? You can look it up. It, the data is there, the average cost per hospital bed by province, and on and on and on. And so I'm just puzzled. They, they're making the argument they need to do this for confidentiality for negotiating. And I just, the moment I saw that, I thought, this is specious nonsense. And, and the reason why, number one, the U.S. has already released what they're paying to the pharmaceuticals for their pre-advanced um, contracts, or their uh, contracts in advance. And, and they're ten times the size that we are, so they're going to really set the, price, the market price uh, to a great degree. And secondly, the government is not just another company negotiating in the marketplace. It is unique. It has a parliament, <laughs> and it can legislate anything within its competence. So the idea that it's hamstrung in its negotiations with, with, with pharmaceutical companies is just nonsense. They can legislate. They can introduce price controls tomorrow morning through a bill in parliament. 
So that idea that we're somehow uh, hamstrung and we can't release this for uh, for competitive reasons is pure bunk. They're so why would I, they want? Why would they not want to to reveal politics, that number, Scott? Politics. They're, but even if you, even if it was a massive number, wouldn't you say, "Look, we're spending all of this money to keep you safe." I, I think it is going to be a massive number, and, uh, and I, I can only speculate, but I can tell you there's an awful lot of speculation going on in Ottawa right now. I've lived here all my life, and my goodness, it's red-hot fever pitched that there's going to be a fall election. And I, I'm, all I can do is assume or speculate, uh, that's what I'm doing, that the backroom people have decided, look, we're going to be rolling out in that uh, throne speech such gargantuan spending, because Trudeau's already said that, basically, in his speech last night, that uh, maybe they're worried that this is going to uh, give too much ammunition to the opposition or something along that line, mm-hmm. or maybe they just want to keep it uh, to, for a big bang on the throne speech day when they roll it all out as uh, just one great big bang package of saying, look, at this is everything we're going to do. But the idea that they're doing it because it's going to hamstring them about with the negotiation over the price with the pharmaceutical companies, I are, as I said, is pure bunk because they've got the market power as the government of Canada, an eighth-ninth largest economy on planet Earth, and next door, largest economy on the planet Earth, has already announced the prices, and that's going to essentially set the market price on a per-vaccine shot basis. So does it make sense that they want this all as part of a throne speech uh, package as opposed to assumption that maybe we overpaid here? Yes, I think that that's also their concern because, you know, governments are always concerned about being criticized by the opposition, by the media. And and it is going to be a very big figure (laughs) in the billions. And uh, so they're worried that they're going to be accused of being not getting uh, uh, bang for buck, that they're not going to have done their due diligence and, and that sort of thing. So the easiest way is just say you've done it so nobody can criticize you for not negotiating these contracts and then not reveal the price tag so then people can't um, you know, get upset about the uh, price that they're going to be paying. Uh, I, I think that that, and, you know, and remember amongst progressives, and that's his base, there's not a lot of love for pharmaceutical companies. Uh, that's one of their favorite uh, targets, banks and pharmaceutical companies. So announcing as a progressive prime minister that you've just signed contracts worth several billion dollars to pharmaceutical companies is not something that makes the heart of progressive voters go pitter-patter. Uh, getting uh, back to the uh, September 23rd throne speech, do you think this throne speech will be set up to trigger an election? In other words, as you said, so many goodies, so many things to... Uh, to set off the opposition that it will trigger a throne speech, or will this uh, just unite them more with the NDP? Um, I think he is setting the stage, setting the table uh, for a for an election. Certainly, there's a lot of people in Ottawa that believe that now. I mean, just it's just incredible. I mean, it's really incredible how many pundits, people in opposition parties, academics, you know, people at the the bubble, the Ottawa bubble, <laughs> and uh, and and I do think he's setting the table, and whether or not. Uh, someone will take the bait and defeat him. Uh, he's got the, uh, even if he isn't defeated, he can say something like, well, for something so major, because it will be criticized by the conservatives, because it's so gargantuan, he's saying, uh, in terms of what they're going to table. So it will be criticized and attacked by the conservatives, even if they don't defeat them. So he can then say, I need a mandate for these changes because they're so substantial, they're so big. And so I think he is either preparing for a being defeated in Parliament uh, on a confidence motion, or even if he isn't, he can still ask the Governor-General to dissolve Parliament, saying, 
for changes of this uh, magnitude, of this right. uh, because it's so great, it's so substantial, it's so expensive. I need a mandate from the Canadian people, which is a legitimate statement, by the way. Right. So he could trigger it. He could trigger it. He could trigger it himself. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're going to be. Uh, uh, I didn't think so even a month ago. But I watch. I read every speech. I mean, I'm on the mailing list. You know, the the email distribution list for everything that comes out of the PMO. And he's out on campaign swings right now. Uh, and uh, so I think it's looking more and more likely. And the amount, and let's be clear, the rumors coming out, I mean, John Iveson has written about this in the National Post. Yeah, he'll be on a little later on today to talk about that. Yeah. The the numbers that they're talking about are so enormous. And they even say themselves, they're going to be unprecedented, and they mean unprecedented compared to what we're experiencing right now at $360 billion in the ditch. So for those who thought it can't get any bigger or deeper or larger, <laughs> hold on to your... Put your seatbelt on and wait for the throne speech. And so when you're talking change of that magnitude, I, I don't see how a minority parliament, a minority government can legislate that with legitimacy. They're going to have to get a mandate from the Canadian people because it is so gargantuan, the extent, not just the money, it's what they're going to be doing in terms of the interventions in the economy, in terms of unemployment insurance and regulation of employers, taxes, and so forth. And so I think he's going to, he needs to have a mandate. He, it's a very high-risk poker game strategy because he could be defeated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Governments do lose elections sometimes. But he's, he's going to roll the dice, as to use Mulroney's famous flat phrase uh, when, on Quebec 20 years ago. He's going to roll the dice on a, a massive radical expansion of social programs in Canada, and he's, he's, going, he's betting the farm. So as he moves farther and farther to the left, where does this where does this leave the NDP? Where are they in this discussion? He's made, I think, Mr. Trudeau uh, has made a strategic calculation, judgment, calculation and judgment, that um, he wants to, if you will, clean up and uh, solidify uh, their claim on the left. I think it's going to uh, cause great damage to both the Green Party and the NDP. Because he's eating their lunch. I mean, yeah, like, their they, like they've done for the last several elections, both provincially and federally here. But even more so now. This will be because he's pushing so much further to the left. I think the risk, Scott, is not so much on the left. I mean, I think he's already, it seems to me, established his bona fides on the left amongst Greens and Social Democrats and progressives. I mean, I don't hear anybody saying from that side of the spectrum. I'm hearing uh, a lot of conversation privately and now some of it's leaking into the media. I'm talking the blue liberal type, centrist blue liberals. I'm talking David Dodge. I'm talking Jean Charest. I'm talking Bob uh, Bob Ray. Either they've been on CBC Power and Politics, or they've been in uh, Iveson's column has been quoting some of them. And there is a lot of unhappiness amongst blue liberals. And uh, Frank McKenna is a blue liberal. John Manley has publicly criticized the former deputy prime minister under Kretschmer, mm. former minister of finance. And so these blue liberals... You know, people assume that all parties are monolithic and everybody goes in raw, raw, raw on election day and votes for the guy, your guy. That's not true. Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 because of five states, and they were the swing states that put Trump in the White House. And there was a wonderful paper done by a professor in the states using hard empirical data. And he showed, he took the vote that Obama had won four years before in those five states. And four years later, those, province, those states were bigger in terms of population because of population growth. In fact, Hillary Clinton's vote 
from Democrats, from black Democrat voters, went down 5%. Yeah. They stayed home and sat on their hands. So there's a risk. And in, I wrote a paper about the 2011 election, and I interviewed people like Martha Hall Finley. And, who, and she completely agreed with my theory, which was that in the last 70, and the polling data showed this, that in the last 72 hours, which was showing a minority government in favor of Ignatieff, supported by uh, uh, Jack Layton, the NDP, and in the last 72 hours, there was a huge swing in the GTA, enough from blue liberals, enough to elect Stephen Harper and give him his majority. And, and mm-hmm. so my point is, there's a risk. This is a very high-risk game, that, uh, or not game, but strategy of... Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, because he could risk alienating blue liberals. And there's a lot of blue liberals in the Toronto GTA area and other parts of Canada. Well, many have said that the next election is going to be one in the center, not on the left or the right. It's going to be down the middle. Exactly. Yeah, it'll be fascinating. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always fascinating, Ian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.